All right, everybody. Welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar, and this is Storytelling 101, part four of my five-part series exploring key principles of storytelling. And in this episode, we're getting into the grooviest principle of them all, which is the actual art of telling a story in scenes. That's right. How do you paint scenes in your audience's imagination so that they visualize a story in a way that immerses their attention from the very beginning of a story all the way through to the end? And in doing so, how do we actually hold on to their attention? Come with me now and let us enter the world of storytelling through scenes. Well, hello and welcome. It is Tuesday, August 11th as I record this, and it is still a global pandemic out there. So I hope you are safe and well wherever you are as you're hearing this. And if you're hearing this way in the future and we've made it out of the pandemic successfully, please do drop us a note way back here in the past. Send us a time machine and let us know that things are okay. And if things are not okay and you're listening to this in in an even more dystopian apocalyptic hellscape, uh, you know what? Keep that information to yourself. Don't let us know. So for what it's worth, in the middle of a pandemic, here is the next episode in my Storytelling 101 series. Now, it's been a while since I've been able to record these episodes. So by way of recap, what's been the story so far? The Storytelling 101 series of episodes is really about five key principles of storytelling that I normally teach in my storytelling workshops. And what I've been doing is, in each episode, I've been unpacking one principle at a time. In the very first episode, we got into what I consider to be the most important principle of storytelling, which is the idea of motivating tension. Without that, a story goes flat. The second episode centered around what I consider to be the most personal or the most emotional element of storytelling, which is the idea of the main character and the the key idea of connecting a main character to the motivating tension of a story and centering a story around that main character and how that main character experiences that motivating tension. The third episode centered around the idea of the plot of a story, which is really the journey that a main character takes Uh, in order to resolve the motivating tension of the story. And one of the key insights from that third episode is that um, the plot of a story actually unfolds through a series of plot twists, twists and turns in the journey. The journey the main character takes cannot be a straight line, has to involve unexpected twists and turns. And so now in this episode, we're going to actually get into how do you tell a story given those three elements, given uh, a central motivating tension that provides the energy source for the story, given the main character or characters for whom that motivating tension matters the most, and given the plot twists, the twists and turns, the, the shape of the journey ahead for the motivating tension, how do you actually set the story into motion? And that's where scenes come in. Because scenes are quite literally how we see and visualize the action in a story as it happens moment by moment. And not only do scenes get us to see the action, scenes actually get us to immerse ourselves into the emotional experience of that action. Because we're not only visual creatures, we're emotional creatures. And being immersed in a scene actually makes us feel the emotional energy of what is about to happen and what is currently happening in the story. 
And what that does is it really then focuses our attention on the action that is happening right now, in this moment, in this scene of a story. And so attention then becomes this really powerful emotional part of storytelling. If you as a storyteller want your audience to actually be hanging on the edge of their seat with attention, we have to tell the story in scenes. But the problem is that attention is actually quite tricky. And attention actually means something very personal to me because I actually have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. And for the longest time, I thought that meant that I had a deficit of attention, that the stereotypes of people with ADHD being that, you know, I simply can't focus long enough, I can't pay attention. And it turns out the more I've studied attention and how attention works in people, the more I've come to learn that people with ADHD, ADHD actually have a surplus of attention and that the that the ways that attention works in our brains is that attention is actually a third-order effect. It turns out that if I have to ask somebody to pay attention, it means it's too late. They've already decided to pay attention elsewhere. Why? It's because what actually generates attention is interest. People pay attention to what they're interested in. and But what is it that actually generates or drives interest? It's curiosity. People get interested in whatever excites their curiosity. And we are a fundamentally curious species. We have evolved to be innately curious about the world around us. And that is a good thing. Your attention has probably wandered in just the past six minutes of this podcast. And that is okay. You're not going to be able to control your audience's attention. Your audience, if they're people are going to be curious continually. And we are surrounded by stimulation. We are driven to distraction. There are so many triggers of curiosity all around us all the time. And that is okay. But what we have to do as storytellers is figure out how do we use curiosity? How do we use the audience's own innate drive for curiosity as a trigger, as something that sparks their interest and then gets them to pay attention to what's about to happen in a story. And then once we have that attention, how do we then immerse their attention until they become curious about what's about to happen next so that you build this experience, you build a story as an experience where the audience gets to feel this emotion of wondering, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? And that's how we're going to build scenes, through combining triggers that excite people's curiosity and then ways to immerse that. So first, let's get into how do you trigger curiosity? What are some hooks and transitions to get people into the world of storytelling? Let's get into curiosity now. So what are some ways to get people curious? Now, a curiosity trigger is also known as a hook. Um, and a hook in storytelling is basically that um, phrase or phrases that signal to somebody that a story is about to follow. And so one of the most classic hooks is the phrase, once upon a time. As soon as you say once upon a time, 
everybody knows, ah, a story is about to begin. But there are a few other phrases that work in a very similar kind of way and are actually much more useful in sort of conversational, everyday types of storytelling. One of my favorites is the phrase, there I was. If you try to start a sentence with just these three words, there I was, something powerful happens. As soon as you say, there I was, it turns out you have to follow up. The next thing you have to say right after saying, there I was, is you have to specify where you were and what you were doing. So, for example, there I was, running through the airport, late to my flight. Or, there I was, at the bar, minding my own business. Now, both of those examples, there I was, running through the airport, late to my flight. And, there I was, at the bar, minding my own business. What both those things do is they immediately get the audience to imagine you somewhere in some kind of situation doing something. And that right there are all the ingredients that the audience needs to begin visually painting a scene. When I say, there I was at the airport running because I'm late to my flight. As soon as I say that, you all are now imagining some airport. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter what the details. You're imagining an airport, and you're, then you're imagining me running through the airport, and you're imagining the flight that I'm late for. And it turns out, you know, each of you is probably imagining a different set of details for this. Some of you are probably imagining me running through an airport where it's daytime out there. And some of you are probably imagining a nighttime scene. Some of you are probably imagining a large airport. Some of you are imagining a small airport. You know, maybe there are people around, maybe there aren't. And in this pandemic, why am I in an airport in the first place? Right? But it doesn't matter. You've already begun to build out uh, an imagined airport. And then what that does is it builds this curiosity. Am I going to make my flight? Why am I running? Why am I late? What am I carrying? You know, what's going to happen if I miss that flight? Is that an important flight or not? There's all these details that then you then want to see what happens next. You want to know, did I make the flight or not? Or is something going to happen along the way, some surprise incident? This conditions you to expect a turning point, expect a plot twist. Similarly, the other one, there I was at the bar, minding my own business. This also has action in it, but it's a different kind of action. Unlike the airport scene, in this example, there I was at the bar, minding my own, my own business. I'm actually not running anywhere. There isn't a sense of urgency. But just by starting it out that way, there I was at the bar, minding my own business. Now, each of you is imagining a different bar, and imagining me at the bar. And the interesting phrase, minding my own business, allows a certain level of free-form improvisation on your part as to what does that look like for you that I'm minding my own business? What does minding my own business look like? For those of you that know me a little bit, you might assume that I have, you know, that I'm doing something like, say, for example, I'm reading a book. Um, you know, you might assume that based on some interest that you already know. For those of you that don't know me at all, 
you know, you're now improvising what it looks like to picture me at a bar, what minding my own business might mean looking at a bar. But separate from all of that, there's this other expectation of, hang on, this, this story is now starting with a scene where, quote unquote, nothing is happening. I'm quite literally just at a bar, any bar, and I'm, quote unquote, minding my own business, which means that you're conditioned to expect that something is about to happen. Something is about to change this situation. Something's about to happen to me. And you're conditioned to, to now be curious about what is that that's about to happen. So that's one of the powerful ways that, that scene settings work. A curiosity trigger has to have this ability to get the audience to picture very quickly a situation and an action that's happening in that situation. A character who is about to experience something that's going to change their lives. That's what uh, a curiosity trigger does. Um, another example is imagine this. And you, you probably heard me in, um, in an earlier episode, um, but you know the way that works is imagine this. You are in an airport and you're late and you're running through the terminal to catch your flight before it leaves without you. Or imagine this. You're sitting at a bar and you're just minding your own business. Very, very similar situation, but the key shift of phrase here is as soon as I say, imagine this, I'm actually now inviting you as the audience member to actually do a little bit of work. I'm actually asking you to imagine something. And then I'm using the word you to place you into the scene. And I'm saying, imagine this, you are at an airport. And you are running because you're late for your flight. The difference between the previous one with there I was, the ask of you is relatively low stakes. All you have to do, all I'm asking you to do, all I'm inviting you to do is simply to watch as I experience some bizarre situation. But when I say imagine this, you are in a situation. This is a bit of an aggressive move as a storyteller. I'm actually taking you as an audience and I'm transporting you from wherever you are right now as you're listening to this and I'm putting you in some airport. Why are you in this airport? You have to find out. I'm telling you right away, you're late for your flight. It's a high-stress situation. You are now feeling the nervousness, the anxiety around being late for a flight. And those of you that have actually missed flights and have had to run through an airport, you know, you're probably feeling that emotion in your stomach right now. Similarly, if I've taken you out of your current situation and I've taken you into a bar and I said, imagine this, you are in a bar and you're just minding your own business. Right? You're now experiencing this ominous emotion in the pit of your stomach about, well, why am I in this bar and what's about to happen to me? If I'm just minding my own business, there's, there must be some reason why Hari's brought me into this bar and asked me to experience this situation. So very similar to there I was, what imagine this and the word you does is it brings the audience member directly into a scene, makes them have to begin to flesh out that scene themselves, but sets the story into motion, conditions them to be curious about what's about to happen next. Using the word you has this really powerful effect of actually bringing the audience into the scene as the main character. With there I was, I'm the main character. I'm just asking you to watch me. With imagine this and saying the word you, 
I'm actually making you the main character and then I'm building the story around you. Other ways, those, so these are, these are triggers that get people curious. Some of the things that, that can get people curious and trigger their curiosity in terms of transitions more than just hooks are things like saying, and then. And as soon as you say that, there's a little bit of a pause and people are wondering like, uh, yes, and then, and then what? And then what happened? You're basically taking a phrase that's already in their minds and then what happened? And you're voicing a part of it for them. Another way to do this is also to say the word meanwhile. Right? There I was, sitting at a bar, minding my own business. Meanwhile, behind me, there's a commotion as some guy is running through the airport because he's late for his flight. So suddenly now those two scenes come together. These are ways that curiosity triggers work. An effective curiosity trigger has just enough detail in it to set a scene into motion and makes the audience want to know what's going to happen next and what details do they need to figure out which airport, what bar, what's going to happen next. Now that we have their curiosity, how do we then immerse their attention into the scene? Let's get into that next. done the hard part. You've gotten them curious. Now how do you immerse their attention into the scene? And this is where the art of storytelling has a rich and ancient and full history of so many different methods and techniques that storytellers have used for thousands of years to immerse people's attention. Of course, I can't get into all of that, and I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but let me highlight for you four really key techniques. The first, and this is such a cheap trick, but it's so dirty, but it's so effective, it's shift to present tense. Use present tense as you're telling the story. There is something extremely powerful that happens when you tell a story in the present tense. There I was, running through the airport, late for my flight. As I get to the gate, I see the flight attendant about to close the doors, and I reach out and I shout, No! Wait! That trigger starts out in the past tense. There I was, running through the airport, late for my flight. There's already a little bit of a shift to the present tense there. The next sentence, I shift to present tense. Make the action happen now and get the audience to, to, to immerse themselves into that sentence where as soon as you shift to present tense, our brains get tricked into thinking that time is happening now. We've forgotten that this. I'm telling you a story about something that happened to me in the past. There I was running through the airport late for a flight. We've forgotten that. I am. You're now in this moment with me, and you can imagine the scene where I'm actually about reaching out to the door, the flight attendant's closing the gate. Right? The powerful thing about present tense is that 
it's actually very different from how stories are written. When you look at a story that's written down uh, in a novel, for example, it's all in past tense. But when you listen to how people actually naturally tell stories around you, at the coffee shop, at home, on the phone, people shift to present tense when they're telling key moments in a story. You'll find yourself doing this too. The next time you, you, you're telling a story to somebody, listen to when you yourself shift to present tense. That's the first key technique. A second key technique is what a lot of people call show, don't tell. Now, what, how I like to phrase it is actually make them work for it. Too many people, when they tell stories, go into a lot of detail. They tell a lot of detail. They, they try to tell what's in the scene. They don't show what's in the scene. What show, don't tell means is show just enough about what's going on and let the audience work for the rest of the, the detail. The way I like to think of it is make them, invite them, give them a job, make the audience actually work to fill those details out. There I was in an airport. I'm not going to tell you which airport. You have to work on the detail of figuring out or, or imagining at least enough of an airport, enough to follow along. This is a really, really key technique. You know, The difference between the story and the presentation is you want to treat the audience as an active participant. You don't want to treat them as just a passive recipient of information in the story. Treat them with respect and give them some responsibility to actually work at putting the details together themselves. What that does is it gets the audience also emotionally invested in the story. There I was running through an airport. You're all now trying to get on to the next piece of detail just to validate, have, do you, are you imagining the right airport? If I tell you, I'm running through the airport, it is the last flight out of Chicago. It is midnight. I won't get home if I miss this flight. Suddenly, those of you that were trying to imagine me, say, at Munich or in Paris, nope, I'm in Chicago. And those of you that were trying to imagine me, like, running through an airport in the daytime, nope, it's midnight. It's the last flight out. That's okay. You've now, in your mind, suddenly the entire scene has shifted and you've now filled in that it's a nighttime scene and it's Chicago. And even for those of you who have never been to Chicago, you're at least now con uh, constructing an imaginary airport of what Chicago airport might look like. That is a, a huge, powerful element of making the audience work for it, giving them some responsibility. The third technique is, it's kind of cruel. Once you've made them work for it, make them wait for it using pauses, delaying gratification, making them linger before you give them the next piece of information. This is, this is the power of, of, of getting them on tenterhooks, you know, because this then makes that feeling happen of like, well, tell me what happens next. What's about to happen next? Did, did you make the flight or not? You know, did you get home or not? Um, and then the, the fourth technique that I'll leave you with is this is all about emotional experience. So how do you immerse their attention? Is deliberately bring emotional energy into the story. And I call this you know, Hari's first law of, of story energy. You know, an audience has an emotional energy. 
and they're going to stay in that emotional energy until you actually move them to a different emotional energy. And so in order to get the audience to feel the emotion of a story, you have to kind of be a little bit of an actor and you have to kind of bring emotion into your voice. You know, if it's a moment that you're trying to paint, a scene that you're trying to paint, where there's a lot of tension in the air, there's urgency. There I was running through the airport. I'm late for my flight. And as I get to the gate, I see the flight attendant about to close the door. And I yell out, stop, no. That's a little bit of Hamish acting. You know, I'm not a professional actor. I'm a professional storyteller. But that emotional energy, you've, you've got to help the audience feel what are the stakes in this scene. Similarly, if there's humor, if there's sorrow, if it's a serious moment, let your voice actually carry the tone. Now, the science behind this is that there's a lot of research out there that shows that when it comes to communication, the actual words that we use only convey like maybe 10% of the actual information content in the message. There's something like anywhere from 80 to 90% that's all about body language. And a big part of that is actually about tone. The tone of our voice carries so much information in it, way beyond just the words themselves. So let that tone work in your favor. So those are four key ways to immerse an audience's attention. There are a lot of others, but in my experience, these four have been some of the most effective things. If you just try one of these in storytelling, your scenes are going to pop and your audience is going to be captivated. Now, how do you put these together? What's the combination of triggers and immersion? You know, how much immersion is too much immersion? At at what what point are you going to lose the audience's interest? Like maybe some of you have wandered off right now. Ah, Let's get to how do you put all this together? And so how do you build a scene using curiosity triggers and attention immersers? Well, here's the basic recipe for making a scene. A scene starts with some trigger, some curiosity trigger. And leading right out of that curiosity trigger are a series of attention immersers that that bring the audience into the scene flesh out a little bit of detail of the scene, just enough to make them curious and to make them wonder and see things around them. And then at just the right moment, a transition, a new curiosity trigger that takes them out of that scene and into the next one. So if a scene has a curiosity trigger at the beginning of the scene, a bunch of attention immersers in the middle, and then an exit trigger, a curiosity trigger that then becomes a transition to the next scene, That is one scene. Then the tool that storytellers uh, need to build the entire story is a storyboard. A storyboard then becomes a sequence of such scenes where the curiosity trigger, the ending curiosity trigger of one scene becomes the entrance curiosity trigger for the next scene. And so that then becomes the emotional experience, the roller coaster ride that you want your audience to go through trigger to make them curious, immerse attention, a trigger to get them into the next scene, immerse attention, a trigger to get them curious about the next scene, 
immerse attention, a trigger to get them curious about what happens next, and then show them what happens next, and then make them curious about what's going to happen after that, and then show them what happens after that. Introduce a surprise. Tell them, ah, you were expecting that. Aha, nope, it's going this way. Oh, you thought, you know, I was going to make that flight? No, it turns out, uh, actually, I got arrested. Some, some, some surprise element like that. And that then leads eventually to the end of the story. Now, I've been talking about all this as just a sequence of scenes. This is where motivating tension and plot comes in as well. You want to actually then, once you know what the motivating tension is for the story, and then you have the various, um, the shape of the journey that the main character takes, you need a few key scenes throughout the story. We've talked about, in the previous episodes, we've talked about this concept of the inciting incident. Um, This is the moment in the story where the main character actually experiences something that signals to them the motivating tension for the story. So you have to have a key scene where you see that happen. We also talked about in the previous episodes the idea that along the journey, there has to be a turning point moment where the the main character recognizes or realizes there is a potential of a solution to this problem or this challenge that they're on. And so you have to have a scene that shows that happening, that motivating, that, that turning point moment. And then finally, you do need a scene at the very end showing the resolution of this motivating tension. You know, did I ever make it home from that airport? Did I ever get, you know, unstuck from that situation? The audience is conditioned to expect as soon as they see the scene where there's an inciting incident, they have to see the scene where that motivating tension is resolved one way or the other. And so a few closing thoughts to wrap up this episode on scene. Given that the key emotion that we're building the experience around is curiosity, given that we actually want our audiences to get curious and we we actually want to engineer or manufacture curiosity throughout the experience, it turns out that one of the key skills for storytelling is for storytellers ourselves to get relentlessly curious about the stories ourselves, and which means that we need to actually, you know, uh, uh, persistently research all the details of a story, especially the details that we think our audiences are going to be curious about, which means actually approaching the world around us with just insatiable curiosity. All of a sudden, you will find yourself listening for stories all around you. We are a gifted storytelling species. There are so many people around us that constantly use these storytelling techniques. Um, And so you will pick up all kinds of different curiosity triggers and hooks and transitions to use just by listening and being curious about the stories of people around us. And the kinds of questions that you will then find yourself naturally asking people to try to understand their story better is going to make you a better listener as well. And so that's my hope for all of us, is that we would approach each other's stories with relentless curiosity, and that we would ask each other, and then what happened? 
And then what happened? And then what happened? And so, in the meantime, I hope you all stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and stay human. Thank you. Next week, we're going to get into the fifth episode of the Storytelling 101 series, uh, and I'm going to finish out this series with a focus on supporting characters and how important they are in storytelling. So stay tuned for Storytelling 101, episode five.